Hey, you are listening to audio from Fairfield Church of Christ in Fairfield, Ohio. To learn more, get connected, or to support our ministries, visit werfcc.com. much to learn in these commandments that we've been given. I I hope and pray that you're finding yourself making adjustments that you need to make, Um, not because I told you to, because you're commanded to. We're looking at the fourth commandment today, and we're going to look at two different texts. We're eventually going to get to that second one. First one's in Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 8 through 11 in the fourth commandment. Then we're going to see kind of a somewhat duplicate of that same text, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. So that'll be a little bit later. Our fourth commandment comes with a little different twist than a lot of the other commandments that we have, because it's different than all the other nine in that it takes place where we find time with God. A Sabbath, a day of rest, a moment when you can feel secure in a special time, not with recreation, not with sleep in mind, but special time with God and his people. Now, um, I I have said here, and for for anybody that's new, I just want to make sure you know and hear this clearly from me. If your best time to sleep is coming on Sunday morning to listen to the soothing voice that I have, then so be it. The rest of God needs to come at you when it needs to come to you. So if you find yourself dozing and nodding off, let them alone. Don't keep tugging on them. Don't keep stabbing them. It's all right. This is where they found rest. This voice was just soothing to them. That's all they needed. We had this, a, a hymn writer, and, and you're going to hear a lot of hymns and songs today from me because it's hard not to talk about time with God and not talk about the songs of God that have been given to us to talk about rest. One of those hymns was written by a son of a wealthy shipowner by the name of William Dunn Longstaff. He was uh, in the, from the United Kingdom, and the part that I really want you to know is that he wrote this hymn in 1882. You would think in 1882 that life is really slow, no big deal, nothing going on. They're bored. They didn't have computers. They didn't have phones. But listen to A Need for Sabbath, written 140 years ago into our lives still today. It goes like this. Take time to be holy. Speak oft with the Lord. Abide in Him always and feed on His Word. Make friends of God's children and help those who are weak, forgetting in nothing his blessing to seek. Second verse. Take time to be holy. Listen to this. The world rushes on. Doesn't it? In 1882, what was rushing in 1882? Nothing in comparison to now. Spend time, spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. By looking to Jesus Like him thou shalt be, thy friends in thy conduct, his likeness shall see. I don't know if you hear the reoccurring theme in each of the verses. If I were to read all four of them, you would. But the very beginning of it, it says, take time. Take time. And then third verse, take time. What? To be holy. Because we need to take time to be in Sabbath with God Almighty. We're going to hear lots of different things in regards to the Sabbath. I hope that there's some clarity and some help uh, for you in regards to taking time with God. We'll read the text in Exodus chapter 20, the way it was written and handed to him first at Mount Sinai. Verse, uh, verse 8, if we can. It says, remember the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and you'll do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work. Neither you nor your son or daughter, neither manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, there are misconceptions and misunderstandings about this particular text of Scripture. Even today, uh, I hear all kinds of people talking about Sabbath and the need for sabbatical time, which is great because Sabbath has all of these misunderstandings, and it, and it happened really from the very beginning, and they certainly messed up what was given them in this command to do. We'll talk about that more here in a moment, but we still have misunderstandings about it, and I want to help to clear up some of them. So here's the first one in misunderstandings. Again, just in my research and my understanding of what this means. First, one, first misunderstanding, um, it was given to the Hebrew people. Um, this command was. It, that's what makes it different than all the other ten. Now, someone will say, does that mean I don't have to pay attention to it? No, because we're going to talk about why the Sabbath is important to us. And we'll talk about it. So don't, don't get all panicking on me like, well, if it's not needed, then why is it there? Why don't we just take it out? We don't take out ten commandments. We do them. And uh, so this was given to the nation of Israel. On and on and on, we can find throughout the Old Testament that, that there was a Sabbath day, and they created that Sabbath day between the nation of Israel and between God himself. Here's another misunderstanding. First off, it is not repeated anywhere in the New Testament. All the other nine commandments, in some fashion, in some way, are told again, either by Jesus himself or by one of the apostles in their teaching and writing. And we find one of these, this is one that's not rewritten anywhere. Um, and there's no record of Jesus teaching it to keep it. As far as we know, the apostles never told us any more about it. In John chapter 5, verse 18, and multiple places, we were told in plain words that Jesus broke the Sabbath. And, and he broke it in other places as well. It's almost get the impression that Jesus was deliberately trying to break the Sabbath. Kind of what I like about him a little bit. You know, it's like that little, like, watch and see what happens. He would almost deliberately try to break the Sabbath. And it wasn't ever listed in the New Testament as a list of sins. Well, why is all that important? Because we still kind of, I don't know how to say this right, we still kind of like keep rules. And so we kind of make them up. We kind of say, hey, that's Sabbath, and you can't do that on the day, and we start making up these rules as though there's something about all of that. You're not going to see that anywhere except in Old Testament writing. And then, if we're not careful, we get very careful to what they were doing in making 1,521 different laws from the Sabbath that they created in addition to the ones they just had. And so there's a part of us that kind of like order, and so we want rules, and we want to know, like, where's the line? Where can I cross? Am I allowed to do this today? Am I not allowed to do that today? We start feeling bad about it if we did something we're not supposed to do. And so we have this moment where we just don't understand that it's time with God. That's where we rest. It's time with God, and that's where we rest. Jack Cottrell said it in his book, probably better than I could, when we asked this question, does the fourth command really apply to Christians today? He said, yes. The basic principle that underlies is the eternal truth that God is the Lord of time. He knows a thing or two about what we might do on our own if we were left to do it on our own. We would fill it up. And God knew we needed to be commanded to rest. He knew it. But then we find out that in rest, one of the misconceptions is that somehow we've gotten this head in our head, probably as American culture for sure, that rest is almost like a bad thing. You shouldn't do that. Now, there are people on the opposite extreme where they rarely go to work and they don't ever do anything but rest. But there's another deal on, on, the, on that side that we've got to keep our minds busy. We've got to keep doing something 
or in trouble somehow. But I need you to understand that rest extends life and it resets a person. The best rest is not necessarily physical rest that you need, but resting in time with God fixes your busy and neglected soul. Because your soul is what needs time with God. You don't physically need to sleep. You need time with Him. You need the time to speak to Him and talk with Him. And you rest in spending time with the Father, the God of the universe. It resets your busyness, and it resets your labor, and it resets your activity. It resets your brain. It resets your heart. It certainly resets your relationships with other people. And we find out in this rest moment that everything rests. Everything rests. Now, God didn't rest. He doesn't need rest. We'll talk about that in a minute as well. But all things that God made need to rest. Goats and oaks, scarab beetles and pine needles, dragon lizards and dragonflies all need rest. What makes you think that you don't? What makes you think you can go without it? A tree can't decide, I mean, can't make the decision to produce leaves and fruit during the cold weather. Hard months of winter when it needs to rest. It doesn't have the freedom of choice and action. But you and I, we have the freedom to choose whether or not we want to rest or not. And we have the ability, it's really kind of wild to watch, we have the ability to drive our bodies, our minds, and our emotions long past any point of needed rest. We're good at it. I want to say we're professionals. Like we're pros at making it busy life. In fact, that's what we say. Kind of our excuse, isn't it? I'm just busy. It's kind of a free pass in our world. It's like to say I'm busy, I'm kind of busy. And everybody's like, oh, okay. I mean, because we all have that, right? We all know what that looks like. And we live in danger of destroying ourselves by a false sense of values that somehow that we can be better if we fill up our lives with as much as we can. But God extends, once again, in this particular command, grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy, and he commands us to Sabbath, to rest. And what do we do, what do, we do with it sometimes? We make it a holiday. <laughs> or do we make it a holy day? Is it a holiday or a holiday? Which is it? Many well-meaning Christians allow Sabbath to mean a holiday, a time to play and recreate, to vacation and retreat. Please hear me on this. I want you to go do those things. Go recreate. Go vacate. Go do, take a nap all day if that's what you got to do. I'm cool with all of that. You're not hearing me say any of that. In fact, I had some brother in the first service, actually not from our country, comes up to me afterwards and says, I don't understand why your country would make everyone work on Sunday. Good question. I told him, I said, I remember in my lifetime, I can remember nothing being open on Sunday. I don't know about you. I remember that day, like you couldn't get gas on Sunday. It wasn't, in the town I lived in, we didn't have any gas stations. But we only had three of them, but none of them were open. You didn't get gas on Saturday. You, you just drove around on an empty tank on Sunday. That's what you did. You went and got your groceries on Saturday before they closed. Everybody's there late night. Um, and slowly but surely, some restaurant guy says, hey, if I open up on Sunday afternoon, I can get some business. And that makes somebody else open up theirs for business. And that makes somebody else say, well, if you can open up that, then we can have ball practice on that day. And then everything starts to change. And he'd ask that question, what happened to your country? Like, that's a great question. He's asking that of me after the service. I don't have an answer. We fill up our schedules, and God knew we would. We make ourselves full. And then we have to create what is a holy day into a holiday because we don't have time. We're too busy. Some of us have taken the passage where Jesus says that if your ox falls in the ditch on the Sabbath, it's all right to pull it out. And we've turned it into, quite frankly, a lot of bull. <laughs> oh, you woke up for that one. Okay, good. We need to be careful. 
really careful of avoid pushing the ox into the pit during the week, all week long, and then spend Sunday pulling it out. If your ox has a habit of falling into the same pit, two choices, either fill up the pit or get rid of the ox. You've got to make a decision. Because see, here's the uh, last piece for misunderstanding for us. God doesn't need a Sabbath. You do. Obviously, in just what I described, God is a big God. He can handle most issues, and God doesn't need to sleep, or does he need to slumber? He's not headed for a breakdown or burnout or exhaustion or injury. God doesn't Sabbath or sabbatical. He doesn't whine about needing a vacation. He doesn't require a good night's sleep to clear his head or steady his hand. He doesn't run ragged and run amok, pushing himself beyond his limits, patching himself between bursts of pushing himself and being a workaholic. God is not waiting on the weekend or thanking himself for Friday. We are. God is complete without any rest at all. So why would he do it? To show us that we need to. Like a lot of other things you see in God's word, you see God or Christ Jesus who later is baptized and says, now go you and do that. And he's like, well, you didn't do that. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Why does a perfect God need to be baptized? Why does a great God need to rest? Because he's showing us how to do it. He wants to make sure we're going to make it happen. And he deserves our time. So resting in this command uh, has four, at least four things for me that I saw that help us with understanding why we need to rest in it. First off, it's a time not to work. I know that we're supposed to focus on the Sabbath part, but he uses a few verses to let us know about working. He speaks not only about Sabbath, but he speaks about work. In verse 9 he says, six days you shall labor and do all of your work. He wants us to work. Anybody wants to know whether or not, does God care if we work on it? Absolutely. He wants you to. It's in one of the commandments. John chapter 5, verse 17 says this. In defense, Jesus said to the people standing there, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Weird. God and Jesus working. The father works, and so do we. And you and I need to work. There's always a, a time for labor. I can always find something to do. Uh, when I get to my house, I call it tinkering. I don't know what you call it, but I do this little thing like, what's dad doing? Where's the husband at? He's messing with something. I don't know. Doing something. Sorting screws. I don't know what he does back there, but he just does something. And he's just tinkering around, doing his little thing that he does. And in ministry, I find that there's always a time for labor. If I just left it all open for anybody to call any time, they would. And it would happen. And Brian has to rest just like you have to rest. I have to Sabbath just like you have to Sabbath. Some people would say Brian only has one day that he has to work. That's true. I suppose if from this angle, from this point of view, you would say that. But there's always labor to be done. And don't ever get the idea that work was something that came as a result of sin in the garden. That would be like weeds and dirt pulling. That's what I always make fun of. Because it didn't. Before Adam and Eve were forced out of the Garden of Eden, it said in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. See, labor isn't a punishment. It's a calling directly from God. And when you don't work, you're bored. And when you're bored, you get in trouble. And when you get in trouble, then you come here for prayer. Right? It's a way we kind of live out our life. Labor isn't a punishment, it's a calling. 
But here's the thing about this work that happens. Rest is indispensable. It's indispensable. God is calling us to Sabbath from labor and find rest in Him. Taking time to be with Him. Taking time to be with Him. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, Jesus gives us these great words. Again, no words about Sabbath, but words about rest. He says this, Come to me, all who are weary and who are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And I don't know about you, but my soul needs rest. I, I could use a few more hours of sleep, but it's my soul that gets burdened. It's my soul that gets weary. And quite frankly, when my soul is disturbed, it keeps me up. It keeps me alert. Rest is indispensable. God made it clear for six days you're to work and one you're supposed to rest. We'll talk about what that means and what that looks like because a day, again, we talk about this, people are working right now because they have to. I'm not talking to them, I'm talking to you. They're not here to talk to you, they're working. But if I, if I had a chance to talk to them, I'd say, when are you planning time with God? When? If you've got to work on Sunday, when are you planning time with God? And you may get two-hour slurts of it, but that's when you got to figure it out. And when you do, this is my time with God. That's it. And you make that time with Him. Because the second thing that I would see is that it's a time to mimic God. Sabbath, the word Sabbath, some said Sabbath actually is Hebrew for seven because it's the seventh day that they did all that. But actually, Sabbath means rest from labor, rest from working, allowing your spirit to go, not just, not just my physical body, but my, my head and my spirit to not be thinking about all that all the time. Jack Cottrell in his book on the Ten Commandments said that physical rest is not the point. We make Sunday special by celebrating our spiritual rest in Christ Jesus. Physical labor, as he described it, was something that was for them, the Hebrew people. That was Israel. That is not the church. Jesus has come since then. He's died on a cross, resurrected, and he's given us a new line and way of thinking about this law. He doesn't want to discard it. He knows we still need to rest. But he's not calling us to a Sabbath on Saturday to make it happen. He wants us to spend time with him. He wants us to rest in our souls and connect with him again Grounded in the fact that Jesus' death and resurrection are what we're coming to think about. It's not a rest from work. It's a rest from worry. What would we worry about? Death. Hell. Damnation. Not today. Not in this moment. I'm resting from all that. The rest of the week has been about that. But not today. And we hear it in all the songs that we sing. Here's just a few of them that I found that speak about this mimicking of rest that we all have sung about. And some of them are unfortunately going to come out like me singing them because I can't say them without a tune coming to my head. So if it starts, I don't want to sing them all, but every once in a while I got to get caught in it. Here it is. This is the first one. There is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God. A place where sin cannot molest near to the heart of God. Then there's this other song that we sing. There's rest for the weary and rest that endure. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. And then we have this hymn, resting in my Savior as my all in all. I'm standing on the promises of God. We have this song, when oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace. For I am yours and you are mine. And then we have this one about rest. 
perfect submission. All is at rest. All with perfect submission, that's what we have. And we have this song, come all you weary, come all you thirsty, come to the well that never runs dry. And then this last hymn, in every high and stormy place, I rest on his unchanging grace. I rest in his grace at Sabbath. When? Whenever I take it. Whenever I take it. Don't put it on a calendar. Don't, you may have to. Put it on a calendar and schedule if you have to. But take it. Make it happen. Spend time with them. Mimic it. Why? Because God set the example. He knows that you're going to need a way of doing things. He took the lead and he practiced what he wanted us to do. I don't know if you've ever found yourself trying to lay down with a niece or a nephew or a grandchild or a child who's cranky and needs a nap. Has this ever happened to anybody but me? You try and you try and you try and you got to lay down and got to lay down. And so what you finally end up doing, if you've ever done this before, you know what I'm talking about. In the days when I was not quite as heavy as I am right now, I would crawl into the crib with one of my children. And I would look at them in the face. And I would touch them gently. Maybe sing to them. Maybe I'd get them up in my bed and they'd be with me for a little bit. One of my favorite memories is my daughter Mariah that she still talks about today because she remembers being old enough to do it. She would come and find comfort by laying on dad's chest. And now she hears my heartbeat. She knows my ways. And somebody's taking a picture of Brian. Boy, she went to sleep great. Resting with God. Resting in you knowing the one who's taking care of of all it is that you've labored over. When does that happen? On Sunday? From blank to blank? Maybe. But I need it on Monday sometimes. I need it on Wednesday afternoon. I need it on Thursday morning and Saturday afternoon in the middle of what's going on in chaos. I need to stop and say, wait, I need time with them. Because he's an example. Six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in it. And then he rested on the seventh day. It's a recognition, quite frankly, of our own weaknesses and our own smallness and how really small we really are. Reminded of the fact that we're made from dirt. And quite frankly, it's what all of us are going to... We are going to decorate the daisies when we die. Sorry, but it's the truth. A lot easier to talk about while we're alive than on the day when we're celebrating your, your death. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 puts it this way. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. You see, if you and I don't take care and rest when we're supposed to be, we're fragile like clay and we'll break, we'll bust, we'll leak. And so we need to go back to him for him to fix and repair so that we can still be that jar that we need to be. We go back to Christ for strength again and again. Hear the strength in the rest of this text that I just read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 12 is the one that you probably know best, where we find this incredible strength in jars of clay. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. 
Persecuted but not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, and life is at work in you. That's the strength that we find in Sabbath. We imitate God so that we can stop trying to be God. Are you hearing me on this? It's like the fourth commandment that I'm still telling you what I think he's trying to say. We imitate God so we can stop trying to be God. We want to take his spot. We think we know better than he does. And Sabbath reminds you that you need God and that you're not him. And you mirror divine behavior so that you can freshly discover how human you truly are and how much you need God to be better in your life. Then we find this piece that's where we're going to look at the second text in Deuteronomy. It's a time for freedom. As much as Exodus commands us of the idea that God of the universe works for six days at making and creating and making and creating, it was good, it was good, and it was very good, we get to this idea in Deuteronomy where we find freedom. Same text, same commandment, a little bit different way of reading it. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, because it's a twin text, as I'm going to call it today, a twin text of what it is we've just read. Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. It says, observe the, the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor, do not do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your maidservant, your manservant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any other animals, nor the alien within the gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. We've heard this before, right? But then it goes on. It says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Two identical twins with a little bit different flavor. I had two, uh, there's a difference between identical twins. If you've been around identical twins, you know this, but I grew up with a set of identical twins in elementary school. Uh, both of their names started with the letter E, and everybody got that wrong. They were both dressed in the same outfits every day. They were that parent who did that, and they both had ponytails right here, and they both had exactly the same hardware to hold their ponytails up. And so people would call them the wrong name all the time. Get them, get them, you need to sit over there, you need to sit over, who are you again? And they did that all day long, and I'm like, how do you not know them? By knowing them, I found out that it wasn't about their hair or about which, what letter their name started with, but it's how they walked, how they laughed. One snorted and the other one didn't. They were nothing alike. And you had to be around them in order to be able to see that. And in this text, we find two identical twins talking about the same idea of what happens in the freedom that comes and we find two different ways of looking at it. So I want to spend the rest of this moment talking about this freedom that we have. Because one of them, the first one in Exodus, is actually one for invitation. And the other one that we find in Deuteronomy, it's a warning. Deuteronomy is to remind you, because the invitation is given like, you should rest because I did, because I created, and you should rest. But in Deuteronomy, it's a reminder that you were once slaves. There was once a day when you denied any choice in the matter. When you wanted rest... When you wanted work, it was when you were told to. You can rest now. You can work now. And you will work more even if you're tired. And it was a bullwhip that reinforced the idea. Pharaoh didn't rest or couldn't rest until you worked. And he was upset until you did. And Deuteronomy is a warning. 
that life was like before. Don't go back is what it's saying. Don't go back to your taskmaster. Don't revive what God has removed from you. Don't try and put back together what God has smashed from your past. Don't be yoked again. His hand has already saved you once. Do you need it again? Don't go back. In this, in this, uh, same, this same twin text that we're looking at, the first one looks at looking up, and the second one looks at looking back. Exodus wants you to look up. The one who created you, informed you, and showed you how to rest. Deuteronomy wants you to look back. You hated that life of being controlled by threats, right? By being taunted and beaten with your taskmaster. Why would you want to go back and do that again? Isn't it interesting how many times they said, just send us back to Egypt. Just send us back to Egypt. I'm so tired of this life. Why would we want that? What's wrong with us? God knew we would need a Sabbath because we couldn't control ourselves. Here's another one for us in regards to this that leads us to a time of communion. One, the first one evokes God's character. The second one evokes his redemption. And I can't say the word redemption, even in the Old Testament version of what we're talking about, and not point to Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to grab uh, your communion that you have nearby you. And as I do, I share this with you. The book of Exodus speaks of God's character. He's a God of order. He's a God of example. His ability to stop what he says, that's good, that's good, that's good. And then he sees us and goes, that's very good. And he goes, you know what? I think I'm going to sit down. That's Exodus. But Deuteronomy, the passage is the twin. It wants to see redemption. God set you free. What from? Plagues. How many? That's right. Deca. There it is again. You were set free from your taskmasters, and they were drowned by God, dragging the whole Egyptian army into the muddy, weedy sea bottom. But they seem to call you back, don't they? Every time you begin to get rest, every time you start to find Sabbath, every time you schedule a moment when I want to be alone with the Lord God, something interrupts, and the taskmaster is still cracking a whip. No rest for you. No rest for you. And in this text, we're reminded that the taskmasters are going to distract us from the redemption that we get. And I would just challenge you in what you hold today. Don't go back to Egypt. Redemption is leaking out of Christ Jesus when he comes. All he wants to do is save. All he wants to do is redeem. All he wants to do is extend grace. All he wants to do is to love unconditionally. All he wants to do is to save you from yourself. He's on this planet such a short time, but Jesus comes to free you from sin. Hear about it one more time in what he does in Romans, as we, and then we'll take our communion together. Romans chapter 6, verse 15 says this, What then, shall we sin because we are under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you're slaves to the one in whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer parts of your body in slavery to impurity, to ever-increasing wickedness. So now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness." When you were slaves to sin, you were freed from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things resulted in death, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, and the benefit that reap, 
lead to holiness, and the result is eternal life. And this verse we all know so well. For the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Another reason to celebrate and rest. Let's bow our heads and thank him for the freedom that we have today. Lord God, we thank you so much for coming and setting us free from the taskmasters of our own sin. They've led and guarded and directed our path for such a long time. And we needed redemption, and you're the only one that could offer that. We can't save ourselves. We can't do it on our own. Even though we say we, we want to try and we can fix everything, we can't. And so we're so grateful, eternally and grateful to you for what it is you've come in dying in place for us on the cross, that you took sin upon yourself, that you shed your own blood to set us free and make us righteous people. Lord God, we now want to live underneath the freedom that you've made us. We're no longer slaves to sin. You are our master. You are our Lord. You are our guide. And we come recalling and remembering the greatness of what you've done and extending grace and mercy to us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, church family, let's take this bread and remember the body of our Savior as we eat and remember him. Would you take the cup and drink and remember again the blood that was shed to give you life everlasting as you drink? couple more of these in regards to this freedom moment. One of these in Exodus calls you to wholly mimic God. And the other one in Deuteronomy, the other calls you to wholly defiance. I know that's a weird word for us. We don't like to say that we're defiant, but we are because we don't want to go back there. And Exodus command moves you to wholly mimic or copycat the holy God who rests. But the twin in Deuteronomy calls you to a wholly defiance, to never be slaves again. I don't want to go back. You don't have to have a master like Pharaoh or one like Nebuchadnezzar or Xerxes or Beelzebub. God is our only wise and loving master and king. And don't let the world lead you and take you any longer away from him. But allow yourself to bow to the one who you need to bow to. And then we have this last one. One of these reminds us that you belong to God. And the other one (laughs) reminds you that you don't belong to anyone else. Slaves can't and don't rest. Slaves, by definition, have no freedom to rest. They are only demanded of and required to and forced upon because taskmasters despise rest. They're sly and cunning, and most are imaginary. They mount psychological war on your need to perform and look your best and accomplish and shine and retire early. These taskmasters keep you confined as slaves by letting you know that you need them. And this is a condition that keeps you awake at night, in need of vacation, at paid time off, complaining of work, and worrying about your future. Because rest, quite frankly, folks, is a condition of liberty. Freedom comes in restful time with your soul in order to find healing that it demands. And rest begins when you go back into focus again. Rest reminds you that your God was big enough, lives enough, extends love and grace enough to know that he's enough and that you need nothing else. Rest is liberty. Listen to what Jesus says as he quotes Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1 about himself. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, it's about redemption and freedom and living without regret of the past. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Don't go back to Egypt ever. It's not worth it. Last one. It's time for, a rest, for us to rest in God. And what does that mean? That means that what Christ Jesus has done and what he will do is already done and he's already done it. See, the Jews and the Sabbath, they were in this day of bondage all the time. The Jews had 1,521 ways that the Sabbath could be broken. And I just think about my think. If I were in their time, I would have tried to discover, just because I'm just ornery enough to see, if I could break all 1,521 of them. I just want to see what will happen if I do that. Just, I just want to be an annoying little person to them. And so here's some of them. You couldn't eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath. If a flea bit you on the Sabbath, you couldn't kill it. <laughs> okay, watch me. You could not build a fire on the Sabbath. You could not rescue a drowning man on the Sabbath. You could not travel or cook on the Sabbath. But I want you to know, Jesus has come, and rest can be found in him. And today's the Sabbath is the gladness of what Christ has done, that he's alive. And do you know, when I keep the Sabbath... Somebody said, well, you work on Sunday, when's your Sabbath? Whenever I take the time. Whenever I take the time is my Sabbath. Whenever you take the time is your Sabbath. If you have four hours on Wednesday, then four hours on Wednesday is your Sabbath. Stop concentrating on the day and think about the time. Who you get to be with. Hebrews chapter 4 Verses 9 and 11 says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following the example of disobedience. You would like to think it's about Christ Jesus, but all you got to do is go down to verse 12. I'm going to start in verse 14 of that same text. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That is rest. And this is always where true worship finds rest time every time. And as Drew has already said, this means it means you have to trust him. And this is where it gets complicated for us. Sabbath means that you trust God enough that you know that if he can take one day and seven to rest, that you can too. Like, it's, like, it's like tithing. I can't do that. He knows that we can live on 90% or he would not have asked us to do it. He, can, he, knows, he knows that we can make it on six days and have a day where we're not doing anything. He knows that. And you find yourself going, do I, do I trust that? Is that possible? Can that be done? Find yourself at least once a day trusting and depending on what he knows is best for you. That his plan is for rest and time with him. And you can always know that in that rest, that he's watching over you. His watch over us is a release of us uh, from our Sabbath rest can always be witnessed. He's always knowing what's going on in our life. He's not watching over me while I rest, but later when the labor comes. 
When the taskmaster returns to think he has something on me to remind me of, he's watching over me, the one I find rest in. How do I know that? Another song. His eyes on the sparrow, right? Why should I feel discouraged, it says. Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he. Ah, his eyes on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. Let your heart, let not your heart be troubled. His tender word I hear. And resting on his goodness, I lose my doubts and fears. And through the path he leadeth, but one step I may see. And his eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. Whenever I'm tempted and wherever clouds arise, when songs give place to sighing, and when hope within me dies, I draw the closer to him. From care he sets me free because his eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me every time. But I have to take time in order to know that he watches me. Because we sing because we're happy and we sing because we're free. Because his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. Rest in the moments that you get weekly knowing that he's still watching over you. Well, I close with a a time of reading from a book. Um, I don't typically like to do this, but I want to advertise the book. Mark Buchanan had a great, great book called The Rest of God, Restoring Your Soul by Restoring Sabbath. I've read it. This is one of those kind of books that I read like periodically because I just need to. Uh, If you want to know it, you can come up here and get it from me or see it. Like, I don't want to give it to you because I'm reading it right now, but I I can let you know about it and you can find out about it. But there's a story that he wrote about that was actually a retell of a story by G.K. Chesterton. And he wrote this little parable that I want to share with you because I just think it just speaks again to this idea of smallness and weakness in us and how we need to be minuscule. We need to release the giant of our schedules because they are, you're busy. I get it. So am I. You're busy. You don't need to tell me. You don't need to make a Facebook page about it. I know you're busy. I'm busy. And you're going to release the gigantic size of busyness and make it minuscule. Here's his story. He says a young boy was given a choice. He could be gigantic or he could be minuscule. He chose to be gigantic. He, his head brushed the clouds. He waded the Atlantic like a pond and scooped up gray whales into his hand, swished them like tadpoles in the bowl, bowl of his palm. He strode in a few bounds from one edge of the continent to the other. He kicked over a range of mountains like an anthill just because he could, and he didn't feel like stepping over it. When he got tired, he stretched out across Nebraska and Ohio and flopped one arm in the Dakotas and the other arm in Canada, and he just slept in the grass. It was magnificent. It was spellbinding. It was exhilarating, like our schedules. And that was good for one day. But then it was boring. And the gigantic boy in his boredom daydreamed about having made the other choice, to be minuscule. His backyard would become as Amazonian rainforest. His gerbil would hulk larger than a woolly mammoth. And he could ride the back of a butterfly or go spelunking down a wormhole. A tub of ice cream would be a winter playground of magical proportions. Life would have been so much more interesting had he chosen smallness. Mark goes on to say, you don't need to be big enough to kill taskmasters or to tear down enemy walls. You just need to trust in a God big enough to remove them. Do you trust him enough to remove them? Or are you still trying to fix everything? 
you're still trying to make everything your problem. He's the king and you're not. And you need to understand that. Figure it out if you may. Because he will make you lay down in green grass. That's what his stick is for as a shepherd. For those of us who won't lie down and make rest happen, he will force us to the ground. You can count on it. And so instead of me telling you to do it, why don't you do it? Why don't you trust him and not be so gigantic anymore, not so busy anymore, and just be minuscule and be okay with that because you recognize you're small and he's great. Thank you for listening to audio from Fairfield Church of Christ in Fairfield, Ohio. To learn more, get connected, or to support our ministries, visit werfcc.com. Thank you.